Welcome to On The Square, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square in collaboration with The Maidan. I am Dr. Saad Abdul-Khabir, Senior Editor of Sapelo Square and Curator Producer of this podcast, where every month we get on the square and into some real talk about race and Islam in the Americas. August is an important month in Black freedom struggles in the Americas. The legacy of Gaspar Yanga, who established one of the first communities of Maroons in 1570 in what is now Veracruz, Mexico, is commemorated in August. Enslaved Africans arrived in the first permanent English settlement in North America in August 1619. The start of the Haitian Revolution August 1791, Gabriel Prosser's Rebellion, August 1800, Nat Turner's Rebellion, August 1831, The March on Washington, August 1963. August is also the birthday month of the Honorable Mosiah Marcus Garvey and Chairman Fred Hampton. And in August of 1979 began the commemoration of what many call Black August, a practice of resistance started by freedom fighters incarcerated in U.S. prisons and continues through the principles of Black August, which are study, fast, train, fight. And the principle of fasting stems from the holy month of Ramadan. In honor of Black August, on this episode, we look at freedom and self-determination with community activist, playwright, and freedom fighter, Jihad Abdul-Mumit. His is a name you might not have heard before, but you should, because he has been fighting for our freedom and self-determination for over 50 years. Brother Jihad joined the Black Panther Party at 16, and eventually went underground in the ranks of the Black Liberation Army. He was a domestic political prisoner who served 23 years of his life in prison for his involvement in the Black Liberation Movement. He is currently the chairperson for Jericho, a vanguard organization that supports domestic political prisoners, prisoners of war, and calls for their freedom and amnesty from prison. He presently lives in Richmond, Virginia, with his family and works as a community case manager at a free health clinic and gives HIV STI workshops in schools and prisons and supports HIV positive inmates upon their release. A playwright, Brother Jihad has written, directed, and produced dozens of children and adult plays for spiritual, social, and political awareness, motivation, and upliftment. He and his wife own their own community theater company for our children. Greetings to everyone listening. I am so excited. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. I am joining in today from the ancestral territory of the Ashinaabe in Wyandotte, and I am joined by the esteemed Brother Jihad Abdul-Mumit. Brother Jihad, how are you? Alhamdulillah, sister. I'm doing good. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. You know, it is some crazy times that we're living in, although I guess we've always been living in crazy times <laughs> since we got to the Americas, particularly as African descendant people. But one of the things that these times have made me think about were questions of freedom and self-determination. 
And when I thought about doing the podcast and having an episode on this topic, I thought you would be a great person, right, to talk to about these issues. And so to begin, I want us us to start with a little bit of your history. So you are a member of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army. And so you played a direct role in the Black freedom struggles of the 1960s and 70s. So can you tell us a little bit about those organizations and what compelled you then to join those organizations and to struggle for freedom? Yes, alhamdulillah, bismillah, rahman, rahim. Um, yeah, I joined the Black Panther Party when I was 16 years old. Uh, I'm from New Jersey. I live in Richmond, Virginia now, but I'm from New Jersey. And uh, uh, so when I was 16, that would probably put it right around 1970 or so. And so the Black Panther Party was established for four years by that time in October 1966. And I think it was just, you know, every summer for those of that age or maybe just aware of that history is that um, every summer there were a lot of rebellions in the streets and, you know, um, the Watts riots, they say riots, I don't, but just to, for people to connect Watts riots in Newark, New Jersey had a big um, rebellion going on all across the country. Um, so Plainfield was actually no different. And we used to sit on the, on the roof of my house, you know, and just watch fires burn, you know, miles away downtown. And all these images uh, and police brutality was very um, rampant. You know, we think that, you know, with the cell phones now we see more, but actually it was still happening. It was happening then also, and we were aware of it then too. All right. So then along with that was the images of these strong sisters and brothers in black and the Tams. And so that resonated with me. And then there was one particular incident where my brother and father, both who passed away now, uh, and I were driving in a car with him and we were pulled over by the police. I don't know what it was for no turning signal, light out or whatever. And they made us sit on the curb, typical self-confidence style, you know, self-central. Right, right. And um, put a gun to my dad's head. Don't even know the reason why. I was so scared. I didn't know what to do. Scared because he might get killed and scared. It's scared. It was a scary situation. So that was, I think, the the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of me joining the Panther Party and to do something about it. I mean, it's a lot to go into that, but that's basically the impetus of me joining. I think I was upset with myself for being scared, too. It's a weird thing to say, and I didn't want to be scared. So I wanted to not be scared. So I joined an organization to help me not be scared by doing something about it, if you can kind of put that in some type of context like that. So we had in Plainfield, we had we have big, big um, Black Panther Party chapter. Uh, there was other chapters to Jersey City and Lang City and all these places. But, uh, you know, we had a free breakfast program. We built a health clinic from the ground up. And I think it was in South Plainfield. And just the f- focus there was uh, sickle cell anemia. And uh, poetically, I work at a health, free health clinic now today as a paid uh, senior case manager. The, the focus there is HIV for myself, um, dealing with uh, prisoners coming out that are HIV positive and dealing with their medical needs and their reentry needs. So, yeah, we public uh, political education classes, selling the Black Panther Party paper, which I love to do, be on the street, interacting with people, running my mouth, you know, shooting the stuff, you know, and um, 
I, that, I think selling the Panther paper was the highlight of every day for me in the Black Panther Party. You know, I eventually got convicted for two bank expropriations. We say expropriation, we don't say robberies, but we was trying to really build finances for um, the movement to free the land down south. Uh, that would be Georgia, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. And, you know, you can't get that through bake sales. So we viewed ourselves at war with the government. And that's when, and these were government institutions, you know, that's how we viewed it. That's why we weren't doing that with supermarkets and stores and things of that nature, you know. Anyway, make, okay, so on, I know when I went for one of my arraignments, they had two uh, lovely white ladies there that came in. I guess they were the bank, they were the bank tellers. And I was the only black person in court, and I purposely braided half my hair. I'm bald-headed now, but they can't see me. But, <laughs> um, And uh, I purposely braided one side of my head all crazy and wild, didn't stand up for the judge. Everything I could possibly do to disrespect this guy. Um, don't recommend that for anybody going to court, by the way. <laughs> and how old were you at this point? Uh, I think well, I must have been 20 at this time uh with these convicts so on their so they you know i'm the only black person of course so when the prosecutor asked do you recognize the person who robbed the bank you know each one of them individually and separately in the court uh, you know separately uh brought in you know they they said they didn't recognize me and one of them winked at me now i only tell that story and i've told it a lot of times it's, i cannot say why because i haven't talk, ever talked to these ladies they didn't feel threatened by me that smile and wink is not an indication of being threatened or intimidated of course and i can only surmise that and you know, a lot of those best that they probably was because people just generally supported the movements back then they may not have been on that extreme uh end of the of, of what's going down but people generally like say, okay, right on. I understand. Yeah, I'm not gonna nail you, you know, to the cross, so to wow. speak. And, you know, and so these women must have been of that attitude. And um, so I still got convicted, though. <laughs> <laughs> so you did this expropriation when you were part of the Black Liberation Army. Can you tell us what is the Black Liberation Army, and how did you get involved with the organization? All right. Um, well, the Black Liberation Army, I, you know, it depends on who you ask. And, and when I explain how I see how it started, you understand why I say it like that depends on who you ask, because it wasn't something that uh, any group of people sat down to say, we're going to start an organization, an underground organization, the BLA, Black Liberation Army. I think it was a thing that um, people started responding to the injustice of, of police violence. If you know what I'm saying, you know, a tip, eye for an eye, you know, you do that, we're going to do that because our, our position was you cannot, if we cannot walk down the streets in, in safety and in peace, then neither can you and neither will you for that matter. And so, you know, we had different crews. I went underground doing the things with the banks and stuff like that. But, um, and then I think it kind of jailed. So people started, when they did an action, they would say black justice or something like that to indicate that this was a, a intentional act for the black liberation movement as such. Uh, and then I think it was when we were getting in, incarcerated, captured, 
and say, oh, you're from New York. Oh, you're the ones that, oh, at New Jersey, California, and making these connections. And and plus being, a lot of us knew each other, even though we didn't know that we were underground because there's nobody else's business except your own crew's business, you know. But when we were in prison, you know, we seemed to develop, what well, we developed knowing who we were and what you were doing, because now the cat's out the bag. Oh, you did the New York move. Oh, yeah, you, you did the, the one in Ohio. And so and so somehow another Black Liberation Army name resonated and came out. And then we started building around that principles of unity and, and things of that nature. That is Jihad Abdul-Mamish. That is my take on how it started. Nobody said we're going to start this. It was the gelling and coming together of formations and crews, getting to know each other, but everybody in the, their crews putting in work at different places until it became you know, uh, evident that uh, this is an underground thing going on and we are the Black Liberation Army. And I was so phenomenally proud to be a part of that. Uh, and in Lewisburg, I was in the federal system. Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary and Leavenworth um, Federal Penitentiary were the main institutions that I was in. Uh, did 23 years altogether. And uh, we had, and I know in, in the uh, 70s, a very big Black Liberation Army collective there, workout and studying and fasting. And and somewhere along that line, I became Muslim. I used to teach um, Intro to African American Studies at Purdue University. When I Which first, one, Purdue? Purdue, yeah. Oh, when good, I, great. When, mm-hmm. I, when I first got my PhD, and I, you know, as my first job, and I was, when I would talk to people about the, I would teach, you know, about the civil rights era, black power movements, and I would teach about the Black Panther Party, and all of the kids had really negative, and I was surprised, you know, just because growing up the way I grew up, where I come from, like, I was really surprised. It was very, they were like, and Malcolm X too, like, these were negative, violent people. Like, this is how they, this is what they understood them to be. And so, you know, part of my job as an educator was to sort of help them, you know, understand, you know, sort of. Uh, re-understand who these groups were, right? And part of that's about terms, right? How you understand what what people are doing, right? And that comes from your Mm. context. And so, you know, I want to ask you about if you can define for for what freedom and self-determination mean to you and also the importance of, right, naming things, right? Maybe differently in order to understand why someone is doing something. Freedom um, is, uh, freedom is, is, is the ability to be uh, to live in peace, yeah. to be able to freedom and self determination go hand in hand, you know, freedom to be able to uh, develop, design, and contribute to and expire to reach your own aspirations uh, unhindered, um, provided of course that they don't impede and disrespect and encroach on another person's right. Mm-hmm. Freedom is the right to life and a healthy and wholesome existence, to be able to provide for yourself and your family and your community, to feel a sense of protection therein, and to grow and to develop, to be able to pursue education. Um, all these things connected with self-determination is the ability for people of and within themselves to be able to, to do that for themselves with being, without being able to without being dictated to by an outside force, particularly an outside force that means them no well, except to exploit and extrapolate their wealth and their talents for the design of that. And I would use the word colonizing power, if you will, you know, because a lot of times we view ourselves as being uh, colonized here uh, by, you know, um, a right, a white supremacist superstructure. 
Mm-hmm. And it has been such, it's more clearly understood when you start at the beginning with the, um, the, um, the, the slave trade and slavery here. And in so many ways, when you look at the economic and financial and social and political condition of people of African descent, a lot of that has not changed, even though it has, you can't see, the audience can't see me, but I'm raising my hands. So that quality of life has uh, proportionally improved with the advancement of society and technology. True that everybody, even a poor homeless person may have a cell phone, you know, so... Everybody may be able to find themselves in in an air conditioned room and their toilet in their dilapidated house does in fact flush and you turn on the spigot and you can get water out of that. So you don't have to go and defecate in the street and you have a sewage system that everybody can benefit from. So in that sense, because this is a superpower, this is a highly industrialized technology advanced country, we've all have benefited benefited even the ones of us this and there's many of us on the bottom 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 of the totem pole have kind of like your life is kind of like um improved uh, proportionally a little bit with that um mm-hmm. if you can understand what i'm saying yes. but the more things change the more to remain the same system systematically systemically uh, the condition is between rich and poor uh, and the white superstructure and people of African descent remains pretty much the same. Um, it's been even the, uh, the victories that we can claim with people in different positions. I know Malcolm said that, you know, we don't have no black astronauts. Now we do. So all those things can are, are, are signs that um, of the contradictions and complexities of society. But the fact of the matter, systemically, it remains the same. The system is the same, in spite of the fact that we can point to um, African people of African descent in different areas and, and accentuating and, and excelling, which is wonderful. I mean, this is just a, it's not just a uniform this, that, one, two. It's very complex, but like I said, not to be redundant, not to be redundant. It's just that systemically, the grip of power is in the hands of a few, and that few is is by the uh, managerial class of the middle class manages that system and to make sure it stays intact. And we're there in our position, and doesn't look like it is changing in spite of our individual successes. And those successes, and I'm gonna shut up in a minute, are usually linked with um, supporting and buttressing the super class, the super, the, the, the status quo, not necessarily helping us as in our, in, our, in our plight. And I salute all of the individuals that have financially, economically made it to another level that do reach back and help in their individual capacity. So I definitely acknowledge and salute all of the work that just go out and down, you know, um, LeBron James, you know, yeah. just yeah. Uh, basketball, like basketball. And, and uh Kyrie Irving and people mm-hmm. like that have been reaching out to their communities to to uh to help. So I salute their individual efforts, but I'm just talking about systemically across the board, right. how that doesn't resonate to bring about the change that we really need. You reminded like, me Yeah, I'm sorry. No, you reminded me just of um like Barack Obama, like in, in the sense of does the accept like you know, the the exception making the rule you know so you know we we get we get a black president right mm-hmm. but that actually does it it's a it's a sign of like what is not 
possible really for everybody else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like as opposed to, you know what I mean? So yeah. it doesn't break the rule. It makes the rule in that sense. Right. Right. And, there, and there's a very, and there's a, and, a, and the system. I like itself. that system. No, it, 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 yeah, it doesn't make the rule. It breaks the rule. Well, it, it doesn't break the rule. It doesn't it break the makes red. Yeah. So, right. so yeah. And, 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 and then, you know, there's pros and cons with that too, because obviously with a black president, that's very inspiring to, to every last black person in the country in terms of just seeing that face. And so this is the pro side of it. Okay, if there is, if I can make these distinctions, like that's the same with Kamala Harris, a black woman. So how empowering that is for every every sister on the in, in the United States to see that. You know, the downside is that um, it kind of legitimizes an oppressive system. Um, in a way, if I, I may not be saying that as clear as I can. No, that but, was very clear. I think, I think that was really clear. Yeah, it's power. My daughter's looking at Kamala Harris, and and everybody is like, oh man, feeling it when Barack Obama. Look at the name, Barack Hussein Obama. He had a Muslim name and everything. Everybody said this is dynamite, you know. But at, but then the flip side of that is that um, the powers that be um, legitimize their existence by giving us the impression that we're being inclusive. In, in the development of, of this country when really we're being used, misused and abused in that whole process because, like I said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. And you're using us to legitimize, to be able to say to the world, see, a black person can become president in a place called the United States. Um, see, a black woman can maybe one day will be president because we now have a vice president. And But you better make sure it's not misunderstood that you will not be changing anything here. Right. At yeah. all. You got that? Yeah. Okay. So remember where you remember where you at. But one of the questions I had for you, because you're touching on it now, so I want to talk to it. So um, there's a song that I really love by Nina Simone, right? Um, it's called I Wish I Knew What It Felt Like to Be Free. And for me, it's this kind of really poignant reminder that even though slavery was abolished right, in the Americas, you know, in the late 19th century, except, of course, for prisons, um, that we as Black people in the 21st century are still struggling for freedom, right? Because the song still resonates today, I think. And so I'm wondering, based on what you were saying um, just previously, you know, how has or how has it the struggle for freedom and self-determination changed since the 1970s? Yeah, that I, that question that you had asked him, and I read that I said this is a serious question here, and um, and for the listeners want to understand that I'm I'm not a genius. This is just my humble opinion, and a lot is 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 the best of knowers, you know. And so this is just my humble, and respectful uh, opinion to just for those that are listening, you know. Um, about how I see things. And I'm looking at the situation all the time because I've been involved, directly involved to the point of fighting against the government with a weapon at that, you know, since I was 16 and I'm 66 years old um, now. So that's 50 years of, of being directly and intensely involved, not just looking at it from the outside. But how I see things have changed, uh, sister, is in the 60s and 70s, there was a, a, a clear thought of the, of establishing our own government, our own society. And it was based upon mostly upon the principles of socialism to divorce ourselves from a capitalist dog-eat-dog -dog system that we were clearly on the bottom and it would remain like that. And, and establishing a, a government based more on socialist economic principles. 
Now, how the philosophical political outlook would have actually looked like, we never got to that point to, to really know, in my opinion. So, you know, so as a, as a Muslim, I would say, well, where does Islam fit into that? As a nationalist, somebody would say, well, where does such and such fit into that? So we really never got to that level as a people, but we do know economically that we're going to have to implement a system more akin to socialist values and principles so that people can benefit and there's nobody exploiting nobody. We knew that much. Today, I think that that, 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 that desire to have your own is really not there amongst the broad masses of people. It's there with different individuals and organizations for sure. It's there, so it's not that it's disappeared, but it's evaporated in the minds and psyche of the people. And those pe- a lot of those people, you know, that may say that a lot. So, you know, here's the deal. So it is a natural inclination, inclination uh, of every individual to do better for themselves, for their families, and for their communities. So you strive to get a better job. You go to college to increase your income and, and, and you know, obviously to pursue what you really want to do with your life. And you want to get out the hood, uh, you know, get out the slums, get out the ghetto. Pardon me for using those terminologies. I don't want to stereotype, but just cut into the chase, and you know what I'm talking about. You know, and to get a, a better house, if you have the money to do so, instead of renting, let's get earn, get some property. And you get the property, you get the house. Um, and you may not be thinking for the conscious, progressive, militant, revolutionary, whatever, activist, thinking that I'm going to become part of the capitalist society in the process of doing that. But your, 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 your elevation and growth in this whole process kind of puts you there. And every step of the way, you unwittingly, unconsciously are becoming more invested in this society, in this capitalist society. So when somebody comes along now, 50 years removed from free to land in the 60s, you know, the free to land now, and you have your house and your job and your kids go to this school and you're trying to get to college and you're part of, you got a, a scholarship for, for, for basketball or football and all these investments into this society, and you know, are you going to uproot and move somewhere and start again? So this is not like the uh, 1700s or something where, you know, you can almost build your own house by hand, go out there and, 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 and get some land and, and dig it out for yourself. This is a highly advanced technological society. We as a people, a lot of times, we don't even, particularly the activists, don't even have a clue how to do it. a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. At all. And, 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 and so the building of this, the building of our own structure, how we are intertwined in this very society. And, and so for somebody to pragmatically say we want to separate, I respectfully to my comrades that say that. And, and it is. And, you know, so what does that look like and why haven't you done it? So now I went to prison for this. For, for with a gun in my hand, you know, expropriating these banks, putting my life on the line. As a matter of fact, in 19, January 23rd, 1973, you know, in Columbus, Ohio, I got into a shootout that went through two counties, Franklin County and whatever the next county was, trying to get away from this spot here. And the whole purpose was for this. So it wasn't like I'm just talking and downing the whole thing about freedom land when I risked my whole life and then had to do prison time for it. It's just that I'm looking in reality that that um, nobody has made a move with freedom land. You ain't bought no land yet. 
Mm. And any anybody from another ethnic group or somebody that's not even conscious just went on and got a store and started doing their thing and proliferated, you know, without the, all the phil- phil- militant phil- philosophy about this stuff and the politics, you went on and did it. But we haven't done it. Mm. And the brothers and sisters that do have land, we haven't migrated to their land. Mm-hmm. we're still there and we're getting for those that hold that line we're getting older and older so we're not apt to just move i'm not apt to move neither i hear in richmond Virginia, i got a four-bedroom house you want we're going to move somewhere i'm just speaking pragmatically so right. okay jihad let's move we're going to free the land okay um, i don't know i've been I have, i've been a case manager for 17 years on this job i got health insurance i got arthritis you know i got asthma I'm going to leave my job and don't have the insurance. I mean, there's a lot of things. I got three kids. Mm-hmm. I'm just being pragmatic. I don't want to draw out the answer, but you asked me what has changed. What has changed? The whole notion of uh, free to land uh, is only relegated to a, a, a small group of revolutionaries, which I totally love and support. Right. But it doesn't resonate with the people. And the some of the mo- a lot of people that they that may say it out their mouth, you doggone don't believe that yourself. Because when you start talking about practically and pragmatically how you're going to do this, you don't have a clue. And if your situation individually was to change, all of a sudden you got that boom job or you scored on that rap music you were singing. Yeah, man, they picked you up, man, on that label. So you went from that studio in the garage. Now there's, you know, some record label or if they even have record labels, whatever. Somebody picked you up and was going to pay you. You ain't going nowhere. I already know that. It's the same thing with the activists on the streets. You militantly press, protesting the police violence. The attitude has changed there, too. So when you get clunked upside the head or they mace you and they lock you up, you're crying. Look what they did. When you did that to us, we we're trying to escape. We're doing our push-ups, F you. And we're the struggle continues like the movie Sp- Spook of Sat by the Door. When you get incarcerated, you, you continue to build and fight. You don't beg for a lawyer. I couldn't mm. give a dang on if a lawyer came to see me or not. Mm. Just give me a crack. So that's a difference in thinking. When you're trying to build a nation, that means you have to have warriors to fight. You yourself, even if you're not on the front fighting line, have to be of that frame of mind. We're not of that frame of mind. Let somebody get arrested today. There'll be emails flying. So-and-so got arrested. You got to win. You know, the cold-blooded panic. And, and for those that are listening, if I may, sister, mm-hmm. close your eyes right now. Close your eyes right now and imagining the FBI coming to your door and, and, and handcuffing you, charging you with something that you vaguely know about, but it really wasn't me. Oh, my God, how they got me twisted with that. That was more. Oh. And now they take you downtown. They book you. Then you don't get a phone call right away. Now you got to get a lawyer. And now you have a job. You have, then you're going to lose that. The car note is due. Can't pay that. Your house and apartment is, is gone. And, and now you, your lawyer comes to see you, and he's talking this crazy stuff. And now you might be facing five years, which is not the time that we were facing. But just you know, let's pick a number, five years for some charges you really have nothing to do about. And it's a conspiracy thing that complicates it did I but I know about it that's what uh, Malika did that that wasn't me oh man and all of this and you can see right there in your own imagination how effed up you would be mm-hmm. how this discombobulating and disruptive that would be for your family this is the cost of freedom and if you can't navigate that imagination that imaginary thought in your mind where you can feel some type of strength in the midst of that oppression and that discombobulation, that disruption with your family and separating from your kids and all that, if you can't see yourself in that and how you'd be strong in that and enduring in that, 
then back up a minute. So I want to, so these terms you're using, so sort of, you know, um, rebellion versus riot, um, expropriation versus a robbery and freeing the land, right? What you're saying there was a particular kind of consciousness. I think we call it like black consciousness, right? Where people see themselves as a nation. You see yourself as a nation, as a nation who doesn't have or struggling for your own freedom and self-determination as a nation, right? And so nations need land, right? And nations have adversaries, right? The United States government is your adversary. These institutions that they have that are, you know, that have been exploiting your community since the 1500s, right? These institutions now, they, there's a debt and we're going to take it, right? So this is a very different kind of way of seeing your community and its relationship to the United States. Fast forward, you know, almost 50 years later and Black people are not, everyone's not on that page, right? Many people have deeper investments, even if they don't see it that way deeper investments in, right, how the, how the system actually works. And so it's a lot harder, right, for people to imagine that they would do those kinds of things, right? So that's what I hear what you're saying. And and I'll just add to that, too. When I was listening to you, too, I think, and, it's, and, it's, and that's that, that complication, that paradox you were mentioning earlier as well, right? Because while that's true that there's these investments, right, you know, after sort of you have the black power movement and then you have the influx of crack cocaine, heroin, these drugs, right? All these ways in which the community also kind of like the strength that you would have, right? Is being, uh, is being um, sort of whittled away by these structural things like drugs like and mass incarceration. And so I wanted to move to mass incarceration because, you know, you paid a really heavy cost, for your commitment to our freedom and self-determination. And so can you tell us, and you, you can tell the story, you know, you said it was January, right, in Columbus, Ohio. So how, how did you go from January in Columbus, Ohio to becoming a political prisoner? Well, alhamdulillah. So yeah, that's the last um, bank expropriation in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I had some beautiful comrades with me. And it's just for, for juicy tidbits for the listeners, you know. So we actually had got away from this this uh, bank. <laughs> you just want to hear the details because it's kind of exciting, you know. And um, we had drove some neighborhoods away. And the only reason I know these details because I actually went to trial. The only reason I went to trial is because I'm trying to escape. You can't do it if you don't get – got to be moving back and forth somewhere. Anyway, so that's that there. Anyway, so – um. Sorry. Um, this guy had his hobby was listening to his Bearcat scanner for police reports and all stuff. And then he's looking out the window. He's looking out the window for his one time pension check. And he's hearing that the, the, the bank was robbed around the corner. He's old. And he's hearing that it was noted to be three black men. I mean, four black men, even though one was a sister. Uh, and it was like a blue four-door sedan, even though it was green. But nevertheless, he's at the same time, he's listening to his hobby Bearcat scanner and looking out the window for the mailman. He sees us pull up in front of his house. Four black people getting out of this um, described car, getting into another car and an SUV. Back then it was called SUV, but this uh, travel hall uh, this other vehicle, and he calls the police and gives them the description of our vehicles. 
<gasps> oh my God. So by the time we get on the highway, change our clothes in the car, like our routine was. And on our way, we separated two cars, chilling, going back to um, New York. <laughs> All of a sudden, we hear on this, everybody used to have CB bands back then. You know, Breaker Breaker 1-9, uh, you know, there's the truckers talking to each other. He said, we got a um, convoy of Smoky Bears coming up on the such and such mile marker. And I'm saying, we just passed the such and such mile marker. I'm like, what the heck? Then somebody said, oh, by golly, we got a bear in the air. And I look up, there's a helicopter. <laughs> and then we just no U-turn thing except for authorized vehicles. This police is looking at us. I said, now the chase is on. And we was chased through two counties and shots fired. You know, we fired over 100, round, 100 rounds of exchange on that highway. I think, you know, a lot that nobody, no pedestrian was shot, you know, but we lit them up and not a single one of their bullets hit our vehicles. The judge asked them, they told them they need to go to shooting practice anyway. But um, that was how that only regret I had. I didn't cut the bands on the money and let it go over the highway. I would have loved to have done that, you know, but um, and check this out. So when we you know, I got my uh, brains knocked out on the road there. Uh, when I was captured by the police. I mean, they beat the dickens out of me. That was the first of about three or four serious beatings, serious beatings uh, that I received. And so when we put us, myself and the sister that I was with, uh, I don't know if you want to name mention, so I'm not, that I was with uh, my comrade, they put us in a car and the other two comrades were, were busted. Were, were, they were stopped about a mile earlier. And so they had this black sheriff driving the car and I told him, brother, we are members of the Black Liberation Army. We're fighting for the freedom of our people. You know, could you let us go? And you can just say we escaped. And his response was to look in the real view mirror at us. And I know the audience can't see my face, but uh, he just said, if you can hear my breathing, like, like that, it's like, he kind of related to what we was. This might he might have been saying, "Kiss my behind for real." But my 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 judgment of his response was, he was like took note of that. He he shook his head like somewhat in like acknowledgement of that. But but I, you know I can't do that. So even with that saying that, and then when I got there to the police station, they separated me and the sister, and uh, you know he brought me a a pack of Benson and Edges. I didn't even smoke. I started smoking. I was smoking like I was smoking for 20 years. Uh, he brought me a pack of Benson and Edges and a Coca-Cola. And I was smoking it. <laughs> he said, man, good luck. Wow. After the shootout and after the beating, this man saying, good luck, man. He gave me some cigarettes. I guess he assumed I smoked, which I didn't. And uh, But I did then for about two months. I stopped again. But um, And a soda, which me well. So I think that even with the capture of certain police, you know, who when they realized who we were, it kind of resonated with them. I could be wrong, but they are, you know, but that's how I, I look at that. Um, so that's that. But um, I'm almost like, now, what was your original question on that? <laughs> you, you even <laughs> forgot. No. <laughs> I talked no. too much. No, no, no. But so that was the story of how, so you, so this is the, the last expropriation of a yeah. bank that you committed. You're on a high-speed chase through Ohio. You get um, picked up, you know, the police capture you, they beat you, right? Mm. Um, you end up in jail. I believe you get beat, you said three times, so you get beat well, three times. During my incarceration, different oh, incidents the, the, happen. The spread, yeah, right. yeah. And so you, so I'm assuming you go to a trial and you get convicted. 
for 23 years. Is that? Well, no, my uh, first trial is two, uh, two expropriations. One was in New York. This was in Columbus, Ohio. So we got convicted for the one in Columbus, Ohio first, and then I went back to an older one in New York. We, there was a whole bunch of uh, expropriations. We just got convicted for two. And um, so I, I got uh, 25 years max and three years for a sawed-off shotgun, which during that time, you know, you only get about five or six years for a bank bank robbery back then, you know. But we got I got 25 years and uh, three years for a, a sawed-off shotgun. That was 28. When I went back to New York, I got another additional 15. So it was a total of 43 years, and I. You know, I did about so five years is what you get for a bank robbery. Normally, you back I mean, the no. statute carries uh, eighteen U.S.C. Uh, whatever it is, I forget twenty one thirteen. What is um? I think it's a maximum twenty five years. So we got the maximum about so, that. And so, why do you think you got? Or why do you know you got the maximum? Well, well there's a couple of things. It just you know talking about this Robin Hood syndrome would not be tolerated. Um, and then, of course, I kind of do myself, which I said in the beginning, make sure you stand up in court because not standing up. So it's kind of funny now, but I'm I'm an old man now. But just looking back on it, not standing up was seemed to be more offensive to that judge than the 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 the, the charge of the bank robbery itself. He couldn't care about that. That's just a routine. OK, we got another robbery, another black person. OK, you know, let's let's do this, guys. But not standing up now. Who not does that? You know, <laughs> that blew his mind. Even my lawyer was like, "Oh, shoot, you better stand up." When I went back to the bullpen, nobody even wanted to sit next to me. So, but 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 I wanna. So I hear. But so, because I'm thinking about what you're saying. So normally the, you would get five years for a bank robbery. I mean, that was the average time. The average time, say. but the the maximum is twenty five, right? Um, you end up getting about 48 years, right? 43. 40, 43 years. Um, and I guess I guess what I want to say, I'm forgetting myself, but what I wanted to say was, and nobody died, right? Yeah, Chauvin, that guy, that cop Chauvin got less time than I did for, for assassinating a person on public TV, you know, for 10 minutes almost. You know, he got 22 years, so there you go. Right. <laughs> Exactly, right. So that's the thing. So, 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 so this is why. I, so I'm thinking. I'm like. So this is why you talk about being a political prisoner, right? Because right. the 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 punishment, right? The punishments never fit the crime anyway. But but particularly even in, even in the context of right the criminal justice system, the punishment exceeded right what was normally given for that crime by far exponentially. Yes, indeed. And the amount and so, of time you did in prison too. And you become Muslim in prison, right? As yes. well. Mm-hmm. And so, can you talk a little about about why? Like, why did you become Muslim? And then, and how does Islam figure into right your commitment to freedom and self determination? Right. Yes, indeed. So the first thing is that with the political prisoner question, real quick, when I got arrested, the whole notion of us, all my comrades, that's on the ground level doing this serious uh, work here, if I can put it in that frame terminology, you know, we didn't necessarily consider ourselves political prisoners. That whole thought and concept, you know, Huey was a political prisoner, and Bobby Seals, Chicago 8, 
the Panther 21, because these are highly celebrated cases that are so absurd and ridiculous. And Huey being the uh, one of the, the co-founder with Bobby Seale, so his case rightfully took notoriety. And so they're political prisoners. Free Huey, free, you know, like that. And there was no free jihad. I mean, so. So um, we didn't even view ourselves that. I mean, we know we were warriors. You know, we knew who we were. We weren't even tripping at all with gaining any outside support, you know, of that such. Um, we were working out, having PE classes. We were, you know, if we could escape out of there, we could, which is, you know, difficult. Maroon Schultz did it a couple of times, and the Sada Shakur was blessed to get the heck out of Dodge. But for the most of us, we were locked down steady, you know. But that's how our, our attitude was. It wasn't really, sister, into um, the book Calling Up the Morning, and then the National Jericho Movement in 1998 uh, was was started. Uh, that and that's almost. I came home in 2000, so it was then that people were saying, well, you know, who are these Panthers? Who are these BLA members? They are political prisoners. Before that, I never even referred to myself as a political prisoner. To be honest mm -hmm. with you, I'm just like brother jihad. Mm -hmm. So this whole notion, which I'm glad it came up in the realization that we caught up to speed, that we are in prison because of our political activities and the notion of POW, uh, prisoner of war, a lot of prisoners say that too, but a lot of people don't uh, strategically use that. It doesn't, you know, and I don't know if we have time to talk about how the fact that so many of us has been in prison now for 50, 60 years, we don't, now we've gone back to not saying political prisoners in, in a lot of circles, judicial circles, because they'll never let you go out. They'll never let mm. you home. So in order for you to come home, you have to dummy down, eat humble pie, grovel the ground, apologize, not apologize, but show remorse and regret for what you did. And maybe the pro board will let you out. And because there's no real strong movement to, to effectuate a demand, to, to demand that you be released, you almost got to write these good Boy Scout letters and, you know, and Girl Scout letters to the pro board on how I got my GED and haven't got an incident report in, in 30 years and how I've been a good uh, inmate and please let me go home. That's where we're at right now. That's where we're at right now in 2021. In order for Sundiata or anybody else to come home, Ed Poindexter, uh, Imam Jamil, I mean, and, well, maybe not. His case is different. But any, most of the political prisons that have come out the Panther movement, you almost got to show what a good Boy Scout we are. Please let us come home. And I'm saying that hopefully facetiously, I'm saying that facetiously, hopefully not disrespecting anybody, but anybody listening that does the work, know I'm telling the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, you almost got to, and lawyers would say, shh, shh, don't say political prisoner. They'll mm. never let you go. Mm. I disagree with that, but that's the, that's the uh, fabric of what we, that's the climate. So mm -hmm. to speak, being a Muslim, I became Muslim um, in three months after I was incarcerated. I always, Black Panther Party is a Marxist-Leninist organization. I ascribe to that. I, I, I long since to the cultural revolution in the 60s debunked Christianity, you know, and the racism and Jesus being a white, blue-eyed, blonde hair, which Islam um, definitely um, uh, validates the, the existence of Jesus. He's a prophet of Allah, so we respect and venerate him but not as a white person, blonde hair, blue eyes. And so I only knew of the Christian version, the slave master version. I definitely wasn't going to ascribe to that. So I defaulted to this uh, atheist belief. So I thought of Marxist-Leninism. I always believed in God in my heart, never really professed it because I didn't know where to, 
how to articulate it or even to understand it at 16, just reading a lot of literature and we read, we read, we read, we read. There was no cell phone to distract you. We competed in how many books we could read back then as teenagers. And so that was that for Christianity. So I wasn't having that, even though my mother was a Christian and may Allah have mercy on her. And, and alhamdulillah. And, and so, but I didn't ascribe to that. And so when I went to prison, I was invited to Juma by a brother in New York that I used to see drink wine and play the, the, the trash can on the street, the drums. And I said, what are you doing here? So anyway, he's a, a beautiful brother. He, be, he took his shahada. Kamal Siddiqui, Fred Hilton was in the first prison I was at. I realized that he was there with a Muslim. He's a BLA member. I said, what are you doing there? What? What is this about? So I finally went to Juma and see people coming out, dripping water, the Adhan, Allah, whoever. I said, I'm sitting on the floor. I'm saying, where are the chairs? <laughs> no chairs up in here. Like to sit on them. Now we used to it as Muslims, but you know, you go somewhere and there's no chairs, not unless you're old or got an injury. You know, you just you know, saying that they're sitting on the side, if, but nobody in the prison sitting on the chair, all healthy and strong. Everybody sitting on the floor is so awkward. I'm just like, ha, ah, okay. And but uh, the couple was on Brotherhood. I remember it to this mm-hmm. day, and that was uh, April sixteenth, I believe, or maybe I don't know the date on that Friday. But it was in April, uh, nineteen seventy six. I took my Shahada. They gave mm-hmm. me some pamphlet, threefold pamphlets to read. I read them. They were shocked. I read them overnight. I was wondering, did you read them? Did you read them? Because I read. <laughs> I read all that. And being a, a Marxist, there's a principle called dialectical materialism that I'm always looking for a contradiction in something, something, a flaw, something there, because Allah said he created everything in pairs. So, but, you know, just looking, and I didn't find anything when it came to the oneness of Allah. And it really, really resonated with me. And I took my shahada and never stopped. I was so grateful to Allah for blessing me to see that light and certain things. And I just want to make it brief for quick to say that really changed my thinking. Cause that was one of your questions, how Islam, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't so uh, bitter as such. Yeah. Uh, and I started viewing people more critically as who they are. Now you may stereotype a group of people to put some in perspective, the police or the police watch out. But obviously, if you're talking to somebody individually, they become an individual mm-hmm. as, Muslim, as a Muslim. That's how I'm saying it. All due respect to somebody that may not think that way. You know, it's no longer a pig is a pig is a pig. is a police is a police is a police. And it might be your next door neighbor and he may hate his job. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> so I'm in, uh, or he may take a shahada next week. So it made me back off of the, um, the, the uh, tough guy thing, even though I think I'm still a little tough. But, uh, you know, and I and I started talking. So I got beat up a couple of times in prison by the guards. But I eventually, and I used to go so hard with them, gritting on, you know, staring them down and like, you know. But eventually, not that uh, Islam and just making a joke now made me Uncle Tom and I'm like that. But, you know, I just started being more pleasant. And I took my time to explain the truth and veracity of our struggle to any and all people it could be the warden, the associate warden, the the CO on the correction officer on the in the block, the turnkey, whatever you want to call him, because I know we were right. I know our struggle is righteous. I just had to take a minute, take a deep breath, and take the time to explain it to people. And I got, I think, I think I can explain what we're doing very well. Allah knows best, but just to uh, 
just to say that you know mm-hmm. i i can talk i can talk and explain what we are our struggle and in, in the history of our struggle and the facts around the oppression and and all of these things to a person without condemning them as being a part of that if i'm talking to you individually and i learned mm-hmm. to smile i learned to say what i teach my children now thank you please and excuse me or three words that the youth need to embrace it can get you through so many doors it doesn't make you a chump or coward or anything like that. It makes you a respectable individual. And the last thing, sister, I started looking at myself as an ambassador of the struggle. So how should my conduct be? Vulgar, thuggish, tough, swaggering, or should I carry myself with dignity and pride and explain myself as a statesman to anybody I'm talking to, even my enemy? Mm. And so I would stand up for a judge, not because I'm scared of you, because I am not, but because I respect what I'm doing, I respect myself. But back then, I was like, I was slapping and spitting your, I mean, you know, spitting your food and, you know, break your ink pen if you're not looking out. Anything I could, just stick something in the lock, anything I can to disrupt and destroy. But obviously, I'm not 20 years old now. And that, that change came de- definitely from me being a Muslim mm-hmm. and how I viewed myself. And the, and the last thing I want to say, well, there's so many things to say, but Islam, took the anxiety out of the struggle hmm. in terms of dying, in terms of our victory. All of this is in the hands of Allah, not your hands. And the minute you think it's in your hands, here comes the anxiety. We didn't win. More things changed, more we're in the same. We're in the same condition. We're in the same this. You know, I might die, this and that. But everything, um, and Allah is in full control. All you do is the best you can and totally rely on Allah. And that's I'm, it's easier said than done. That's true. It is a challenge from day to day because we have many challenges, but ultimately that's your default. And that is my default. And it eliminate a, a 90% of my anxiety because you're always going to have some anxiety. Can't pay the rent, car broke down like mine did uh, this morning. And um, there's always going to be that day-to-day anxiety and the anxiety of the struggle and people getting killed by the police. You know, I used to think that Christians were like kind of like soft and mealy mouth. You know how they always like praise God and and forgive people, and not that we're that forgiving as Muslims, but I respect that now, mm. because somewhere in there is the uh, realization that Allah is in control, mm. and that's a healthy way. It's, it's, so maybe we don't have the turn the cheek way about it. So there is some definitely distinct differences, but to recognize that. You know, you will not die unless Allah lets you die at this time, this place, right mm-hmm. now. I don't care if you was in a lofty tower somewhere in the way in the Caribbean enjoying yourself or you was on a street corner making a drug sale that went south. Mm-hmm. If it, that's, that's the time for you to die, Allah knows that and you will die. That is my belief. I find solace in that and it eliminates uh, 90% of my fear and my anxiety. Mm-hmm. I know I talk too much. No, you don't. So, I mean, that's really powerful. And so Islam doesn't change your your commitment to the struggle, right? But it changes your approach to how you operate, right? As, uh, as uh, in the struggle. You said Islam eliminates the anxiety of the struggle, which is something I know resonates with me because as someone who's from the generation sort of after yours, right, who had a mother who was also involved in Black freedom struggles in that period, I often feel like, you know, what do we need? Like, what happened? And what am I doing? And, you know, am I doing enough things? Am I doing the right thing? What else should I be doing, you know? And so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marinate on that for a while. So one of my other questions for you is, so you're a part of the leadership 
of an international tribunal, right, called the Spirit of Mandela, which convenes in October. And it convenes the campaign to bring uh, U.S. human rights violations of U.S. political prisoners, right, to some sort of international accountability. Or it reminded me of earlier campaigns like We Charge Genocide. Um, And what I noticed also is that the tribunal and its aims are multiracial and global, right, in kind of scope. So can you share with us um, sort of what is the history of this tribunal, the focus? Yes, thank you, sister. Um, This, um, what's being referred to now is the October 2021 International Tribunal. It builds on the shoulders of all tribunals preceding it. Brother Lennox Hine, Brother Falcone, and so many others that's been involved. I'm just talking now because the names escape me. How dare I let them but escape out of my mind right at the moment. But so many wonderful, powerful sisters and brothers that's been involved with these uh, tribunals charging genocide, trying to bring uh, resolve to our condition and move it further. So this is another tribunal building on the shoulders of those tribunals, number one. It's not an abstract, isolated you know, thing. They're just popping up like this. So the spirit of Mandela was called for by Jalil Mutakin, a Muslim uh, a BLA political prisoner that was recently released a year or so, two years ago now. Um, he called for this coalition from prison, and we established it. And out of that coalition, one of well, the main uh, project is the tribunal. So now we have a coalition. It's not a black nationalist initiative as such or anything like that. It's a coalition to bring charges against the United States government. It is an organizing tool. It is not just an event. Charge the government with the obvious, the historical and systemic obvious of political prisoners, incarceration, or genocide, as you, if you will, and then take these this documentation and this verdict to the UN Human Rights Council or something like that. And and I say this not facetiously, and them not do anything. The response from the international entities has been very, very lackluster, if not nothing at all, when it comes to our condition of African descent, people of African descent in the United States and people of color, indigenous people, the whole nine yards has not been too much. Even though Hajj Malik al-Shabazz says in human rights issue, we take it to the national stage. We are doing that. We have done that. This tribunal does that. But it also is an organizing tool, meaning we're trying to organize as many people as possible around this. And we have hundreds now, by the grace and mercy of Allah, hopefully we have thousands. Because the outcomes of this tribunal is not just a, a, a potential verdict of guilty for the United States on the different charges, which I'm going to say in a minute, but it's also setting the stage as a result of this organizing and this tribunal being a uh, focal event to bring people together to be able to codify and publish the results, to really put in line, even for you as a teacher, to be able to have, okay, this tribunal put some things in a certain um, perspective, a certain uh, uh, order, codifying it so it can be taught easier and put connecting the dots to educate people around the world, including the United States. But afterwards, we're going to be calling for um, a, the organizing of a people's Senate. So you have the United States Senate, you have the House of Representatives. We're going to have our own Senate, not a third party to deal with the electoral thing. We don't want to get in that muddy water. But, you know, and we're, we're building this car as we're driving it. 
and but we're getting the the critical thinking of so many wonderful, beautiful people, sister. You know, so we'll be having regional conferences after the tribunal. It won't be like like. Uh, and I say this with all due respect, after a lot of the tribunals, not all of them, once the tribunal is over, is it? Man, that was a hell of a thing. What happened? We're, and then 10, 50, 20 years later, we're referring to that, which we should, and I'm glad it happened so that we can refer to it, but it's been like an absence of any activity afterwards because we put it in the hands of an entity that doesn't respond to us. So Jalil Mutakin said in calling for this initiative, he had a slogan, which I so much agree with. It says, we are our own liberators. We have to figure this out. You know, we're not just presenting something to the government, hoping, asking, even demanding that they do something. We are building and organizing ourselves so that we can build ourselves, our own communities. The whole concept of self-determination can be visualized in the efforts in organizing this tribunal. Our people centered across all 50 contiguous states with religious organizations and indigenous nations involved. How that representation will look, we will answer that hopefully as we go along. But you can see the visionary concept in mind. It's very potent. To me, this is the most... This is the most um, comprehensive um, strategy to, to address our condition since I've been home and I came home in 2000. Because you know yourself, a lot of programs just 99% talking about and analyzing our situation. And very little is said about what to do. And that's because it's very problematic and complex and it's a difficult question. What do you do? What can you do? I have another rally, which is very important. Demonstrate, very important. They didn't hear you. They didn't listen. They may have cracked your head open. And if you burn down enough of your own community, they may listen and change a policy. But it's just, um, but the system remains the same. And what's remiss in that whole thing, sister, and then I'll be quiet, is um, the ability for us to organize and do for ourselves the sense and notion of self-determination. We have dilapidated communities. Nobody want to hear about how we're shooting and killing ourselves when we're talking about police violence because that's what the detractors do. You're killing yourself. But I'm not raising it for to detract. I'm raising it to bring out the fact that we need to to build our community so that the world will respect us so that we can actually effectuate a demand. Until we do that, our protests and rallies, out of all due respect for all of us that's in the street, including myself, is that um, we're actually asking, begging, pleading with the slave master to get this overseer to treat us better. And we're leaving our own communities to go haywire reckless. The Black Panther Party didn't do that. We were entrenched in the community. We're stopping the drug trade, you know, death to the pusher, death to the pigs. You know, we were there in a military formation, a paramilitary formation, and we're, we're trying to build infrastructure in the community by food, clothing, and shelter. Now, we had a lot to learn. Our lifespan was very short. The, pig, the police vamped on us and true, but there's a lesson there about how necessary it is to be in our communities and not let that poor, all the demonstrations, they're not addressing the hood. They're asking the government to change policy. And that is very important, sisters and brothers, but you can't do that with total remission and absence of us building our own communities. What is that even looking like? And, it's, and so that's what's remiss out of the struggle today. So this tribunal is going to try to address that. You can go to spiritofmandela.org and see all the information. Very easy. Spirit of Mandela, spiritofmandela.org. Everything I said is on that website and you can endorse it. We said endorse it because $25, 
We're not asking money from Coca-Cola or anything like that. It's your money. And if we get 100,000 people, we have $2.5 million so we can pay lawyers afterwards to be able to organize and activists to do the work that people are doing free right now. And is there an exact date in October? 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, that weekend. That weekend. And will it be, I guess, online or in person? Or how, is, how will that It's going to be in New York. But so it'll be a, a physical live component, and it definitely will be live streamed. The coronavirus taught us, just like we're using this beautiful platform now, it will be live streamed. We have nine jurists, most of them from, from overseas. We're not going to announce who they are yet, but strategically not to do that. And uh, and Kichi Taifa, uh, African sister of African, of African descent, will be heading the uh, legal team there. And we will have witnesses. It's not a speaking engagement for celebrity activists. You know, we're having impacted in, in, in expert witnesses on all those charges. We're going to publish all the results, get this information out to the people. And like I said, help, hopefully we'll be able to capitalize after all the organizing we have done leading up into that. So thinking about political prisoners and what you just said about them being forgotten, I guess my question is, what does not forgetting them? What does remembering them? What does that offer or give to our, or bring to our understandings of what freedom and self-determination are? Not forgetting them means to support them in any way and space that you can, number one. We recognize the fact, because now the efforts is almost borderline begging now because a lot of the, the, the brothers I say brothers because there's only, first of all, there's so many political prisons that's not represented by Jericho and the Anarchist Black Cross or the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, these vanguard organizations that represent political prisons. And if, if there's any other organization, you know, uh, Black is Back Coalition, the African People's Socialist Party, these organizations that support political prisons. But outside of these formations, um, people do not know about who they are. So we're trying to get attention to them so that you can write them, so that you know, on your own platforms, on your own Facebook page, with your own technology, your own Instagram, you can at least mention one. Send somebody $15 uh, because that, that means a lot for that survival and the mental health of that person that's in prison for, for five decades, for example. Um, and to be able to respond to a call, if they're having medical issues, sometimes it's a mass call to call in to a governor, to uh, a warden or to whatever to bring attention. And this has definitely saved the lives of prisoners throughout time. But we recognize that you may die there. You're a freedom fighter. You might die in prison. But we're doing all that we can to bring you home. Or if you're there to make sure that you, you, uh, you uh, people realize that to give you protection, guards and prison institutions do less damage to you when they know that the world is looking, so to speak. And like, again, you can just write people and that makes, I know when I was in prison to get a letter from somebody, that's a big deal. So that's what remembering them is and not remembering them is just to is let them wither and die. And you are cutting off the most direct connection between past struggles and current struggles, not reading a book, but supporting a live freedom fighter from that era. That is the best connection that you can possibly make with, um, you know, connecting the dots between then and now, you know, uh, um, pretty soon we all be dead yeah. and that word of mouth African tradition will be gone. I mean, we can put it in a book and hope the heck that you read it since you're not <laughs> reading too much anymore. Um, but, um, but the word, just what I'm saying, and you've, I've been blessed to be on your program, sister. Um, 
there's a time there will be no, and I'm the youngest of them, and I'm be 67 this year. You know, so all the older uh, Panthers and Black Liberation Army members will be dead soon. So there's nobody that you'll be able to talk to, to ask an uh, actual question to. You can read it if you read, and even then you will miss a lot of nuance. An artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. I think that is true of, of, of painters, sculptors, poets, musicians. I, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's their choice. But I choose to reflect the times and the situations in which I find myself. That, to me, is my duty. So I have, so my last two questions about art. Um, so amongst all the things that you do, um, you're also a playwright, um, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> um, um, and I, I just, I, I'm just, I, I'm interested in your thoughts, right? Like, what is the role of art, right? in the struggle for freedom and self-determination. The role of art, Bismillah, the role of art is probably more pronounced and enduring than me running my mouth like right now, or being on a speaking engagement or a seminar, because people listen to music. They 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 vibe off of visual and edumentainment, if you can put it that way. I've written dozens of plays on my own. I never went to school for it. I started doing it, I guess when I was in New York, did one or two plays and I actually liked it. I can write and I just enjoy it. I pay attention to detail. I've always worked with wonderful people. My wife helps me now. We have a community theater company called Four Hour Children Production. We haven't done nothing since coronavirus and a little bit before that time, just getting a breather. But we've done some fantastic performances. You learn a lot. It's education. We like to be entertained. That's our culture, you know, to dance to the music. One of the most pronounced things about the movement beyond anybody's speech that you can even remember of, even Malcolm's speeches, is something like uh, James Brown, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Say it loud. I mean, how enduring is that? I mean, so our culture, our music, our dance, you know, soul train. I mean, <laughs> that resonates with people that are not so intensely involved. It, it resonates amongst the masses of people. So we need a cultural revolution to change the thinking of our youngsters because a parent can tell their teenager all these things. But if it's not reflected in the music that they listen to, if it's not reflected in the dance and in the plays, if you see plays or in the movies, then it's not gonna. It's gonna be very difficult for it to resonate in the masses of people. Now you can call it activists maybe that go the length to make sure they understand it's different. I'm talking about just your 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 children, you know, and your next door neighbor that's just working, living for the weekend, like the OJ says. And what does the weekend present? If it presents something very negative, then you know. So culture, I think, is very important. We're gonna reboot the plays. Uh, inshallah, looking forward to that. Sure, cool. So we have a question we ask all of our guests that I'm going to ask you. Oh, boy. <laughs> I know what it is, too. So if you had a Black Muslim theme song, what would it be? <laughs> I, I think, well, that I, when I looked at that question, um, it would have to be something on the Islamic line. I know the, the song I like the best in the movement, to be young, gifted, and black. That's where it's at. You know, that. And so I was, you know, even though to be young, gifted, and Muslim, uh, 
doesn't necessarily rhyme. So I have to ask my son, the rapper, to put that together, you know, but it would be something that has a jingle to it along that line that you can sing that has a beat to it, to, you know, and I, and I say young because I would want it to appeal to the young people. I wanted to accentuate the fact that you have a gift. You may have to dig to find it, but everybody has their own gifts and jewels and gems to present to the world. You may not even recognize it yourself, you know, and, and to highlight the fact that you're a Muslim, you know, and I think that that's um, the fact of being in line with your creator uh, listening audiences is the most important thing in your life. Uh, regardless of the trials, tribulations, and vicissitudes that we may experience, you know, we... Um, you have to be in line with your creator. You will die. And my my daughter said, well, even if I didn't know that or was in doubt, I'd rather err on the side of caution than, you know, be so arrogant as to say, well, that didn't matter and die. And now you're in for another reckoning. And that was the reason why I know off the question real quick, but, you know, another reason, you know, just realizing that, um, our returning to Allah it is is our, it answers the question of our existence, because minus that answer, there, I mean, if you just go by the evolution thing, that really leaves you in a quandary. What what is this all about? I might as well go for it for real. And as the uh, the oppressors in society are going for it, because there's no reckoning, you know, thought with um, reckoning in the hereafter. So it would be to be young, gifted, and Muslim and trying to make that uh, resonate in some type of rhythm. I have to call my children in to do that. They'll put it together in a minute, but that's what it would be. And I love that song, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. That's a powerful song, you know. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining me today on On The Square. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of On The Square. Real Talk on Race and Islam in the Americas, a special podcast series brought to you by Sapelo Square and the Maidan. Thanks to our guest, Jihad Abdulhamid. You can find more information about what we discussed, including links and more, by visiting sapelosquare.com slash on the square or themaidan.com slash podcast. Our theme music was created by Fanatic on Beats.